Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So, good evening, and we are learning Rashi in Perak Lamad Bet, and we're up to Pasuk Kaf. So, Yaakov has sent groups of presents in the form of large numbers of livestock to Asaf, whom he has not for 20 years and he knows he's coming with 400 men and he's a bit worried what's going to be the consequence so he sends these presents and he tells the messengers who are bearing the presents what to say and we learned last week that he told uh, the first group what to say and then Pasukat says he commanded similarly the second group and the third group all those who walked after the herds, the herds were all the animals he was giving, saying, like this thing you shall say, when you find him. Um, interestingly, to the first group, it was Vayatzabe de Rishon Leymur in Basit Yudchet. Um, and, uh, and in Yudchet, sorry, here's the point. Uh, he says to the first group, you shall say, that the answer to your questions is, he uses the word, you shall say. But in the second and third group, he says, using the word, which is normally considered to be more forceful than amor. And some people want to comment on that. Rashi doesn't, so we will move on. So, Pasek Kaf Aleph, Continuing the words that Yaakov says to the messengers to say to Esav, Amartem, Gam Yaakov Acharenu. You shall also say, Behold, the, your servant Yaakov is behind us. Ki Amar, because he said, now by the way, it's not clear <clears throat> if this is still part of the message that Yaakov says to the messengers to say to Esav, or it's the Torah talking about what Yaakov thought for himself. Maybe when we've gone through the Rashi, we'll get a better handle on that, or, or maybe not. Ki Omar, because he said, Akapra Hanav. Now, we'll leave Rashi to translate that, but it's something to do with Kapara, which we normally translate as atonement. So, Akapra Hanav, Bamincha, with this um, present, Aholechet Lepanai, which is going before me. And after that, I will see his face, Ulai Isa Panai. Maybe he will lift up my face. Maybe he'll be nice to me. A lot of faces there, by the way. Akapra panav, ki ere panav, panai. Let's see what Rashi says about at least some of them. So, as I promised last week, this is a very interesting Rashi. Every Rashi is very interesting, but it's very interesting because it gives a definition of kapara. So Rashi says, akapra panav, avatel ragzo. I will cancel his anger. So the two words, akapra panav, Rashi says, means word for word, avatel ragzo. Now, Rashi's going to talk actually quite extensively about how kapara means batel, means cancel. Um, he doesn't actually say anything here about how panav means rogez, means anger. Um, if you look in... Um, Tehillim, Lamad Dalad, Pasuk Yud Zayin, 
says there, Penei Hashem Ra. That doesn't mean the face of Hashem with those who do evil. It means the anger of Hashem is those with those who do evil. So we do find, at least in one other place, and maybe, in fact, in the next verse, we'll, we'll come to that later, that Panav is an expression of anger. And it's just interesting that Rashi doesn't explain it, but he just translates Panav by Ragzo to show that Panav means anger. And perhaps looking to Hillian, perhaps that's what he assumes that you know how to do. But Rashi's got a lot to say about Akapra. Says Rashi, Vachain, Vachupar, Beritchem, Et Mobet. Your Pasuk in Yeshayahu, talking to people who are bad people, who are going to suffer, but your eventually your covenant with death will be kupar, what you do to a covenant at the end of its life, will be cancelled. So there, kupar is referring to cancelling. Another pasuk, uh, also in Yeshayahu, Memzayin Yud Aleph, lo tichli kapra. If you look there, it also means uh, you are not able um, to make an end, to cancel it. Venire be'enai, shakol kapra she'etzel avon v'chet v'etzel panim. It seems to me, having said, based on a couple of pesukim, that kapra means to cancel, Rashi now expands slightly the meaning and expands the, where the meaning is applied. He says every example of kapra, which is in connection with sin, or hate, which is another word for sin, v'etzel panim, and is found in the context of panim, which we've already said means is a way of saying anger, Kulan Loshan Kinuach Bahavara pain. They're all an expression of kinuach is like wiping away the Havara and removing. Veloshan Aramihu, and it's a Aramaic, it's an Aramaic expression. And there are many examples in the Gemara. And the Gemara obviously is written in Aramaic. And Aramaic is related to Hebrew. So if we can define it in Aramaic, that sheds light on what it means in Hebrew. So, for instance, the chaper yadei, he wiped his hands. Now, by the way, that's a gemara in Baba Metzia. Uh, in our girsa, in our text in Baba Metzia, it doesn't say the chaper. It says the nagiv yadei, he dried his hands. But it makes, it, it's quite plausible to think the Rashi's text uh, was slightly different to ours because of the scribal errors that have crept in between them and now. Another example. Boy Gavra. He wanted to wipe his hands with that person. Just by the way, that is a Gemara. Ooh, I forget where, but I'll tell you what the context is. It's about the Horban Abayat, and it's about Neron, Neron Hakesar, who is Nero the Caesar. So the Gemara says that Nero realized that he was expected to destroy the Beit Mikdash. Um, but for various ways, he realized that Hashem, boy literally Hashem wanted to wipe his hands, as Rashi's explained, on that person, which means Nero realized that he was both to be entrusted with the task of Korban Abayat, but would then be punished for it. Wiping his hands, wiping Hashem's hands is a metaphor for punishing Nero. And then what did he do? He decided not to destroy the Bet Mikdash. That's why he ceased to be emperor um, very shortly before Korban Abayat. Um, and the Gemara says he went and converted and became Jewish. 
Now, the classical Roman sources say he killed himself. The Jewish sources say he disappeared from Roman society and became Jewish. The Gemara is not supposed to be a historical document, but it's interesting. Anyway, so that, I thought it's just worth giving the story there because it's such a good story. But, yes? Oh, thank you very much. The Gemara and Gittin, which is about the Chorba. And there, Kapure is another example of the word, the root, Kapureish, meaning to wipe, or like to clean up. The Gambaloshna Mikra, and having found two examples from the Gemara, having said there are many in the Gemara, and basically it's an Aramaic word, and as we probably know, um, Rashi has got no problem in saying that the Chumash contains words from other languages, chief amongst them being Aramaic. He often says, this word, a word means X, and you can see that from its Aramaic use. And as I said, it's legitimate to do that because Aramaic is very similar to Hebrew. So if it works in Aramaic, it probably works in Hebrew. Having said that, Rashi brings bits of African and brings of Coptic and brings uh, and bits of Arabic um, to shed light on what a word means in Hebrew. So having given two examples from the Gemara and said there are many, he then says, Gambaloshana Mikra. You can also see this in the text of scripture itself. Nikraim ha-mizrakim shel kodesh, the holy basins are called in Sefer Ezra, kapure zahav. Why? Arshem shahakohen mekaneach yadav behem bisfat ha-mizrak. The Kohen wipes his hand on them, on the basin, um, on the edge of the basin. When does the Kohen need to wipe his hands? When he needs to dip his hand in blood to do some sprinkling, and between each sprinkling, he dips his hand in blood. And when he's finished, he wipes his hand. So these basins, if you look in Ezra, you see they're called Kodesh, uh, sorry, Kippurei Zahav, golden Kippurei. So why is a basin called a Kippur? Because you wipe your hand on it. So Rashi brings that after he's brought the examples from the Gemara, because the examples from the Gemara are very clear. Um, the word kapere, he brings two examples where it actually means wipe your hand. The one from the Chumet, sorry, from the Tanakh, from Ezra, is not quite so clear cut. He has to explain why Kippure Zahav is a reference to wiping hands, but he has done and, and, and it's worked. So, bottom line um, Panav means anger. Interestingly, Rashi doesn't spell that out, he just states it. So, therefore, um, Yaakov said, Akapra Panav. I will wipe, sorry, uh, I will wipe away, I will cancel his anger. And what I find interesting, and I said at the beginning, is kapara is such an important concept that we have, and we have a whole day called Yom Kippur, what exactly is what we say in English, atonement? Rashi would say, based on the meaning of the word, it's the removal of sin. We receive atonement when the, well, the, the stain on our character, on our soul, has been wiped away and the sin has been removed, which also gives the idea, I mean, it's not too far-fetched to say that when we're, before we've done Teshuvah, there's dirt um, on us, and then after we've done Teshuvah and received Kapara, that dirt has been wiped away. Looks like you're thinking something. I'm thinking about, <laughs> like, or is it frost or like? Uh, kafar, um, uh, yes. And he talks, uh, yeah, the, and it does mean frost. And it's the same root. And has it got any connection? I don't know. 
Okay, I'd also like to acknowledge it's probably now very cold. So if you want to turn off the air conditioning, <laughs> you're welcome to. When I see you putting on your winter woolies and wrapping up like that, I feel perhaps I'm unnecessarily cooling you down. Okay, as I said, there is a debate about whether the words ki amar achabra panav pamincha is part of the message to Esau. It really depends if Yaakov thinks that the hatred between Esau and Yaakov is like a fact and a known fact, uh, in which case it makes sense to say Yaakov says to the messengers, this present is for Esau to find favor in his eyes and Yaakov's coming behind because Yaakov wants to wipe away his anger. If the anger is a devayadur, an established fact, and everyone knows it, then that makes sense. If, however, there's still a hope that Esau is not necessarily angry and is not coming in a warlike manner, then it makes sense for Yaakov to be saying that to himself and it not being part of the message that he gives to the messengers to give to Esau. And that's a debate between the Ramban and the Maharal amongst others. The Ramban says, no. The Ramban works within Rashi and then gives his own different opinion. And he says, according to Rashi, it makes sense that this phrase is not part of the message. The Maharal says it makes sense that it would be part of the message because the hatred obviously is public. I think the 400 men is a bit of a clue, but there's definitely hatred there. Okay, Pasuk um, Kaf Bet. The mincha, the offering, sorry, the present passed. Now, Alpanav, Rashi is going to explain. And he spent the night, and that night, in the camp. Uh, and that will lead us on to what happened that night in the, next, in the fourth camp of But Rashi needs to talk about Alpanav, because Alpanav is, is odd. Um, al, on, panav his face, what does that mean? So Rashi says, al panav, kamo lefanav. It's equivalent to lefanav. Lefanav is a phrase we're very familiar with. It means in front of him. So lefanav is lamad panav. And Rashi saying that ayin lamad is the same as lamad in this case. That lamad, the al, is equivalent to lamad. So al panav is equivalent to lefanav. It means in front of him. And he brings two pasukim to prove this. First one comes from Imiyahu. The Khain Hamas Vashad Ishama Ba Al Panai Tamid. And similarly, um, violence and spoil shall be heard in it. Al Panai doesn't it means Lefanai, Hashem says, Tamid um, at all times, uh, always. So there, again, when Rashi brings a Pasuk, he brings it for an, an um, unambiguous use of the phrase that he's describing. The Pasuk leaves no room for doubt that Al-Panav means Lefanav, or there Al-Panai means Lefanai. So um, violence and spoil will be heard in it before me always. Um, I forget the context, but it's obviously not a very nice thing to say. In Yeshayahu, uh, it says, All those who anger me, Al-Panai, in front of me. So, First explanation, because there's another one coming. Alpanav is the same as Lafanav. Umidrash Agada, and the Midrash says that Alpanav, Afhu Sharui Bakaas. Without explaining Alpanav, he explains the what's what what it means in this particular context. 
that he, Yaakov, was dwelling in anger, shahayat sarich lechol because he needed all this. What does it mean he needed all this? He needed to pacify Esau with all this livestock. Um, I've never thought of working out the value of all those animals, 200 goats, but it must be a lot. It must be a vast fortune. Um, so he's cross, he's angered, he's bakas in anger that he has to uh, pay all this money to appease Aesop. Now, a few things to say. So the first explanation of Alpanav is Lafanav. The second explanation of is bakas in anger. And this happens to fit very nicely, although Rashi doesn't like spell it out with the use of the word panab in the previous verse. So we said there that Rashi translates achabra panav by avatel ragzo, that panav is the equivalent of regez, of anger. So he's using it, according to the Midrash, in this um, meaning in this place, al panav as well. Um, the next thing to say is that you might ask the question, why should Yaakov get angry that he has to do something? Um, isn't it all Hashem's plan? Uh, is Yaakov the sort of person who gets angry with inconveniences? I mean, does it normally fit with ya our image of Yaakov that he'll say, oh, bother, I have to spend all this money? Um, so one explanation, um, and as usual, I forget whom it's from, says that Hashem wanted him to be angry. Oh, oh by the way, sorry, you can ask another question before we give this answer. Another question is, why now? He's had to daven. Maybe that wouldn't get you angry. He's had to split the camp and prepare for war. That should certainly get you angry. Why now does he get angry in this third stage of his three-part um, approach to Aesop by sending him presents? Only now it goes. Like it's only after Matavor and Mincha. Now it's leaving. He says go. Like when, well, if it's the, if it's uh, if the he's fighting's still fine. yeah, if he's gonna uh, fighting's fine, he's not cross about having to fight and kill no, and be killed. Planning. planning, yeah, but why didn't he get cross about the fighting? Why wasn't he Shirui but but the cast? No, but he's already he's planned to fight. He's divided right. the camp into two I camps mean, already. The, the fact that they, the presents are gone now. They're actually, it's actually happened. So the fighting is is theoretical. The davening you don't get cross about anyway. He hasn't thought yet, but he has actually sent the present away. Okay, good. But I'll give you another answer. <laughs> that, what's the danger of giving presents to Aesop? What's the danger of giving presents to someone like Aesop? He accepts them and he's not appeased. Uh, okay, I wasn't thinking of that, but good answer. I was thinking the danger is you get too close. You get too close to Aesop. Mm -hmm. And we know that that's a problem. So how does Hashem make sure he doesn't get too close to Aesop? Giving presents is something that normally attracts connection and, and, and love. Um, Rav Desla famously explains that the, the world thinks you give to whom you love. Actually, you love to whom you give. So by giving lots of presents, he might end up loving Aesop and that's probably dangerous because we know that Aesop is out to seduce him and to lead him in a different direction. So Hashem ensures that even the present that he gives is not given with goodwill, it's given with ill will to make it more likely that he won't get attracted to Aesop. Um, yeah, another thing to say is, uh, it looks like Rush is giving two explanations here. Um, and it really does, and I think he probably is. But it's worth pointing out that the two examples he brings from Nach to explain Lafana in the first explanation, both refer to anger. 
both refer to the Hamas for Shadi Shamaba, violence and spoil will be heard in it uh, before Hashem at all times. So Hashem is, there's, there's a punishment here. And the second one is even more obvious those who anger me will be in front of me. So you could say, but it's not two explanations. It's really two sides of the same explanation. The basic idea is kas, is anger. And those two pasukim um, are also referring to anger. Um, where is the anger manifested? Lefanai, in front of me. But the alpanai still has some connection to anger. Um, so really in those, I suppose what I'm saying is, in those two examples that Rashi brings, there's both ideas there. The idea of lefanai and the idea of kas, which happens to be the two explanations that Rashi's giving, but they are somehow um, interconnected. Um, the al, just finally, in the second explanation, al-panav means sharui bakas, remaining in anger, dwelling in anger. So what's the role of the al? So you could say it means neged apo, um, he, he acted neged, contrary to his anger. In other words, he gave the presence even though he was angry. Or you could say it's the kas or the apple um, in his anger. So what I'm trying to say is, if you give an explanation, alpanav refers to anger, you still have to explain the al. Um, in the previous example, the way we explained it, the way Rashi hinted, panav means anger. So what's alpanav? So either you can say that alpanav is neged, contrary to the anger, or or it's in a state of anger. As I'm saying, either way, you have to fully explain that what, what's the Al doing, and there's two possible explanations. Then, Pasuk Kaf Gimel, but he got up in that night, so we just said he spent that night in the camp, but that night is when he got up, he took his two wives, his two concubines, maidservants, and his 11, now the word Yeladav can mean children or sons, and he crossed the crossing of the Yabok. Says Rashi, where was Dina? So, What's Rashi doing? And he's going to answer where Dina was and say something about it, which is going to be extremely hard to understand. Um, and um, I'm not sure um, I have any satisfactory answers to this particular Rashi, but we'll get to that in a moment. Um, 11. How many children did he have at this time? 12. 12. Who hadn't been born? Binyamin. Um, okay. Um, what did Yosef say to Binyamin in... Mem Gimel Kaftet. Oh, you've got the Chumash there? I haven't got the Chumash yet. Mem Gimel Kaftet. What did Yosef say to Binyamin? Is that the whole possible? Have I missed a bit? Ah, thank you. That's the one. Um, he says... What did I say it was? Mem Gimel Kaftet. So Yosef meets Binyamin for the first time after they've been parted. And he says, uh, Elohim Yachancha Bani. 
And Rashi says, why does Yosef say, Yechancha, Hashem should be gracious to you? Says Rashi there in Mem Gimel Kavtet, the other tribes have already heard an expression of Hanina, graciousness, um, whom, your, uh, whom God has favored your servant with. That is a reference to what we're going to get to in a few weeks' time, um, a posset that I happen to feel particularly connected to for reasons we'll get to. Um, but Esau says to Yaakov, who are these children? And Yaakov says, they are the children whom Hashem has, um, uh, whom Hashem has favored your servant with. Okay, so all the children who were there, all the, all, all, all the, all the people who were there at that moment when Yaakov met Esau, who are now present with Yosef at the, in the Yosef uh, story, have had that message of Hanan said by Yaakov referring to them, except the one who was missing, who was Binyamin, because he wasn't there when he met, when he met Esau. And therefore, says Rashi in Mem Gimel, Binyamin Binyamin wasn't yet born. That's why Yosef gave him the blessing of Hanina, of graciousness. Because all the other brothers got it when Yaakov met Esau, and Yaakov referred to them as the children whom Hashem has given graciously to your servant. So in order for this Rashi in Mem Gimel to make sense, we have to say that all the brothers were present. And therefore, when there were 11 children, the one who is missing is the one who's not there in Yosef, who is Dina. Is that good enough? Um, he's going to say that Dina was hidden away. Maybe it's not good enough to say that, because maybe you could say, well, even if she's hidden away, she's still there, and a bro another brother could still, even if, 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 if Dina weren't missing, but another brother were missing, that other brother would be hidden away, so he'd still be present, and he'd still get the bracha of Hanina, and that Rashi could still make sense. What I'm trying to say is, how do we know from the fact it says there were 11 Yiladav, but the one missing is Dina? So one attempt is to uh, go through the analysis we just did with the Yosef in, in um, Mem Gimel. Um, another is to say that Yiladav could mean children, but it also could mean sons. It's one of the ambiguities of Hebrew. Um, and if it's sons, then obviously it's not Dina. Or you could say, that it's two wives and it's obvious who they are and they're both the same. They're the same gender, the same status. It's two maidservants, that's also two who are both the same, same gender, same status. Continuing the pattern, that will be 11 people who are also all the same, same status and same gender. So then there should be another. Oh, she's not there. Right, according to the explanation, Dina is still missing. Yeah, 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 we're going to say, yeah, right, that's Rashi's point. Um, or to put it another way, I mean, really, I should have started with this. I think Rashi's problem is, why does it so specifically say 11 children? Why does it just say all the children? And it said that many times before. Why does it have to say Dafka, two wives, two maidservants, 11 children? And the answer is, it's pointing out that one's missing. 11 and not 12. Who's missing? So for what I've tried to explain, Rashi concludes that it's Dina who is missing. 
So that's why Rashi says, Medina Heichan Haita, where was she? Says Rashi, quoting the Midrash. Nitna Bateva, he put her in a box, and he locked it in front of her. Why did he put Dina in a box? Shalo Yetain Ba'esav so that Esav should not put his eyes on her and take a fancy to her and want to marry her. So Yaakov was doing this to save um, Dina from such a fate of being picked by Esav as a wife. Anyways, later. Hmm? Anyways, later. Anyways, later what? <laughs> ah, okay. Well, funny you should say that because Rashi says, and for this, Yaakov was punished that he held her back from his brother. Maybe she would bring him back to good. Maybe she'd be a good influence on him. But, and, but Yaakov was punished because he denied Esau that possibility of marrying Dina, who might have turned him all good. And therefore, how was Yaakov punished? She fell in the hands of Shechem. How many questions does this raise? 17, a lot. And I do not have answers to all of them. But let me start with a question you might not have thought of. Why did Leah have a Neha Rachok soft eyes? Because she was crying. Because she was crying. Why was she crying? Rashi says. In Kaftet Yud Zion. In Kaftet Yud Zion, she's described as having soft eyes. And Rashi says there, well, soft eyes, because she was crying a lot. She was crying and davening not to be married to Asaph. Um, So why don't we criticize her? Why don't we say she should have made herself available? Perhaps she could have made Esau do Teshuvah. Because exactly here we're talking, Yaakov did the wrong thing by preventing Esau from having the opportunity of marrying Dina. So how can we say that Leah is praiseworthy for all that crying to avoid being married to uh, Esau? And Dina is, Yaakov is criticized for doing the same for Dina. And an answer is, he didn't do the same. Notice, it's actually a very interesting distinction. This is the muscular David says this, that um, Leah cried and Leah davened. What did Leah not do? Hmm? Hi. Hi, she didn't put herself in a box. She said, it's up to Hashem. She tried to make clear to Hashem her preference. That's called davening. But she didn't try and force Hashem's hand, as it were. Yaakov does something different. Yaakov actually takes active steps to prevent this possibility, which could have turned out to be good. So that's one distinction between the Leia situation and the Dina situation. Can I say something about the distinction? No one blames Avram for, for meaning this clearly a like family link of let's hide the woman or let's lie about the woman so that other people don't, don't want her. And no one blames Avram for doing this. And ah. then he forced the Shem's hand. Like no, no one says as far, actually I don't know. I, Okay, uh, you're right. Nobody, nobody, but I think... It's not seen as like, oh, he doesn't believe in God. Okay, okay. Does. So there's, there's one, I, I, you're, you're right to extrapolate what I've said, one thing, um, which maybe, maybe I have to rephrase it. 
um, maybe my choice of words, forcing Hashem's hand was problematic because there is an union of Hishtadlus. We try to achieve what we want to achieve and we daven for Hashem to help us. Um, nevertheless, I'm quoting the Muscular David who says there is a distinction between what Leah did, which was not taking an active step, and what Yaakov did for Dina, which was taking an active step. That, that's the difference. But in your example, um, I don't think it's compatible because um, what was Abraham afraid of would happen to Sarah? Not that she would marry Paro and then she'd be a wonderful influence on him and she'd make all the, the king of Egypt and all the Egyptians into wonderful B'nai Noach people and there'd be no Shibud and et cetera, et cetera. That wasn't the, that wasn't the issue. What was he worried about would happen to Sarah? She'd be taken forcibly and basically, I'm afraid to use the word raped, uh, not married. And what would happen to Abraham that he was worried about? Sure. That he'd be killed. So it was quite a different matter. I mean, you've got the same issue of forcing Hashem's hand, and that's why I'm sort of attracting those words. But it wasn't a case of Abraham held Sarah back from the option, from the possibility of influencing uh, Parah. And by the way, Sarah was married at the time, namely to Abraham. Leah wasn't, and Dina wasn't. No, I just. Um, I hear about then that there is a still a distinction, but I was still wondering if, if maybe the midrash, um, meaning, yeah, maybe Yaakov was not. Is it possible to read the midrash as not saying, oh, Yaakov did not want Yisaf to be chosen with Shuvah, uh, like to do Shuvah? Yaakov was only did not want Dina at the end of. Yeah, I think that's yes. I... the same way that Abraham didn't want Sarah to be raped, and Yitzchak also didn't want Rivka to, to be raped, and that. So to Yaakov now does not want uh, Dina to ah, end up marrying him because maybe he doesn't think his brother will actually rape his wives, but his, he might take his daughter. The trouble is, no, I don't think you can read the Midrash like that, as if it's just a case of, you know, he's worried about Dina's safety. Um, but not? Because the... He doesn't want Dina to get... Well, ah, okay. So, so I slightly translated it, uh, mistranslated it as he didn't want Aesop to take a fancy to her. So I've always read that as marry her. Um, it might be something less formal than marriage, yes? It might be the same as we were saying for Sarah and Rivka. Could be, could be, but but the Shema Tachzirenolamutav, which is the Midrash talking, saying Yaakov was wrong because had Dina and Aesop become united in some way, she could have been a good influence on him, which implies it was more than just a uh, what we were talking about before, but but a marriage, but a, a partnership. But it, 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 <clears throat> you, I mean, the, the key words that you want to focus on is shelo yatein ba enough. And then also the lekach meinach, meaning that Yaakov did not want them to like as a dua. It's just the result of him preventing ah the preventing. the the onesh. An onish came after. And what's the onish? You want to say the onish is yeah, as Aesop didn't do teshuva? Or is the onish still Shechem? Because again, no, the, the Midrash says... That Yaakov does not know. The Yaakov is not conscious that he's, he's preventing his brother to do teshuva. That's what I mean. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Um, yes, and I think you're probably right. Um, well, certainly that's not his aim. He certainly doesn't... He's not setting... Nobody's reading the Midrash and saying Yaakov wanted Aesop not to do teshuva. Nobody's saying that. Uh, the question is, do you read it as saying Yaakov hid Dina, even though Yaakov knew there was a possibility she might encourage Aesop to do Shuba and he prioritized Dina's um, safety? 
I'm, I'm thinking like you're thinking over Dina's possibility of do it, making a substitute or he just was interested in saving Dina. It didn't even occur to him that he could have that, that Dina could have persuaded Asaph to Deshuba, and Hashem is punishing him because it should have occurred to him. It should have occurred to him, and he should have let Asaph have that chance. Okay. Um, yes. Um, I have a slightly different question. Yes. Um, is there any discussion in the difference between Leah and Dina in that Leah was active herself? Like she's the one saying, I don't want to marry Asaph. She's the one crying, as opposed to Dina. Like someone she's, acting she's, she's, on her path. she's yeah. got no agency and like perhaps that's why like because it was Leia's choice Leia was like actively not wanting to then like maybe that's why okay the answer to your question is I haven't seen any but that doesn't answer your question uh, all I can tell you is my brief survey I didn't find any argument like that what I did see and this is interesting it's not comfortable is that perhaps there's another reason why Jacob is criticized for not letting Dina be a good influence on Aesop because we see that Dina, at least in a certain respect, was a good influence on somebody else. Who? Shechem. Now, how can you say she was a good influence on Shechem? He really, he really wanted to marry her. And what was he prepared to do? Brit Mila for himself and his entire people. And, you know, because we're very anti-Shem, we're very pro-Shimon and Levi, and I think that's how most of us read the story, even though there's a big machlokia for Ramban, Rambam. Um, but we, and Rashi clearly, I think, endorses Shimon and Levi all the way through. So we think Shem is a monster, um, and certainly a rapist, and uh, we, don't, we haven't got a good word for Shem at all. But maybe it's worth pointing out that Shem was prepared to accept Brit Milah, which was a terrible sacrifice, and it becomes not Jewish, but it somehow becomes like an adjoint member of the Jewish people. And that is the influence that Dina did have on him. So although it's a little bit out of order, because that hasn't happened yet, but if we say that uh, Yaakov's got, got Nurach HaKodesh, we can say that at least in the future, Dina's going to have a track record of, yes, encouraging a, at least a certain level of teshuva amongst bad people. So maybe that was a reason why Yaakov should have realized that and let Dina have an influence on Aesop, which is different from Leah, because Leah had no track record. Okay, what other questions do we have? Um, I'm sure you have the question of how is this fair on Dina? That Dina suffers this terrible fate of being kidnapped by Shechem and worse as a punishment for Yaakov. So there is an answer for that. If you read very carefully, well, Rashi says at the beginning of Lamadalev, which is the story of Dina, that he explains why it was Dina's fault. Now, that might not be good either. And um, we might have problems or, or questions about how Rashi explains it. But Dina, let's just say right now, according to Rashi, Dina is also responsible. She also bears some responsibility. So Dina suffers because of Dina's actions. Yaakov also suffers from the trauma of what happened to his daughter. And why does he suffer that? Now here we have a principle. Um, uh, the Maharal says that he's not answering the question of why bad things happen to good people. Uh, in general, uh, Yimiyahu asked that question and it's not answered. We can't understand the answer to that. But at least when it comes to the Sadiqim, the great Sadiqim, we need an explanation of why bad things happen to great Sadiqim. 
Um, otherwise, you know, what's the nature of their sidkut? So when a great sadiq, and we're talking like, you know, the top three sadiqim ever, when he suffers um, a, something very painful, we need to know why. We need to know what brings that about. And that's why Rashi says that there was a cause that Yaakov did something which led to him suffering in that way. It doesn't make it the reason for what, it, what happened, but nevertheless, there was a sense of a gorem, a causative effect of Yaakov's actions led to him being punished. So what I'm trying to say is, if you're worried about Dina being punished for Yaakov's actions, you don't have to be worried. Dina's punished for Dina's actions. And Yaakov, who also suffers, the reason he suffers is because of his actions. Could one have happened without the other? I don't know. Yes. I actually happen to um, kind of like the other option of, of taking Russia saying, you know, what happened to Dina not his own suffering, but Dina's suffering is also the responsibility of Yaakov because, because his explanation in Shrem is so, I guess, maybe shocking that like trying to prove, no, it's Dina's fault and it's Dina's fault all of this happened. And what he says here, Kind of, um, you prefer it to be Yaakov's fault than Dina's fault. But because it attenuates his tries to make it Dina's, like to, to put the responsibility fully on Dina with what happens in Shechem, meaning he says there, there's something bigger going on there that's not just about Dina, it's about what Yaakov did. And then it's, okay. it's a bit of the okay. okay, what I'm trying to avoid, because I know it's problematic, is children suffering for the sins of the parents, which shouldn't happen. And indeed, we're told doesn't happen. Um, it kind of reminds me. This so you'd prefer you'd prefer Dina to be innocent and suffering because of I'm Yaakov. Not saying innocent, but at least in Rashi, the fact that Rashi is looking for another responsibility for someone else to blame, okay. and not just Dina. That's and that's good. I mean, you're comfortable. You you prefer that because I'm so uncomfortable with him blaming only Dina. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, the way I read it was is Yaakov is responsible for Yaakov's suffering, but right. you're saying actually it's 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 slightly less problematic if you ask if it's responsible for Dina suffering as well. Okay, rather than blame Dina. Suffering is, like the nature of what Dina's suffering is, is that like... It's much like, worse than Yaakov's. Yeah. Well, no, it's like the putting all the blame on her is like very hard. Okay, so again, you're, you're echoing, yeah. you're echoing what like, we're saying here. We, we'd like to share the blame. I, yeah, I see where it like... Okay, did you want to add? No, nope, you're looking thoughtful. Yeah, just thinking. Okay. It, it, yeah, I mean, it's a broader question, but like Rashi doesn't consider, I suppose, and this is a question, does Rashi not consider that Yaakov had many more daughters and that this really is talking about Yaakov's 11 sons and the other daughters are just not speaking Oh, the other daughters There's being no the marriages. twins. Is that what you're referring sure, to? Twins and... Yeah, like the likelihood of having like... So Rashi mentions elsewhere daughters. the idea that... That yeah, each, have like your well, okay, that ends with that. I mean, that generates a whole new other question of Pashtun. So, Yaakov, sorry, Rashi says by the birth of Binyamin that there was a twin daughter born with each of the Shvatim. Mm. And with Binyamin, there were two, uh, two girls. Two girls. Um, what is interesting, and I don't want to get into it now because I have no idea about, is why these other daughters completely disappear. I mean, um, uh, the, the Midrash brings them in, so the Midrash should explain what happened to them, but um, we don't hear anything about them. Possibly they married their brothers, which is also problematic, 
Um, when Yosef disappears, Yaakov is comforted by all his sons and daughters. And maybe that's a reference there. But apart from that, even, even Dina doesn't have much um, more role in Jewish history. Um, perhaps being hidden away in a box is perhaps quite symptomatic of, of her involvement. Um, I mean, she gets a name. She gets a, she gets a name. Pretty good stuff. <laughs> well, it's infinitely better than the than her the, all these twins. So I don't know if we don't hear what team she's on in the Paraglamadala. Like, Which team are doing? Meaning, when you said people like are pretty anti-Shlem and take the side of Shimon and Levi. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, I like to think I take the side of Dina, but I don't know what side <laughs> that is. Okay, okay. Um, so. Um, uh, really what I'm dancing around is um, the, 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 these descriptions of the uh, formative figures in Jewish history are very gendered, um, very much so. And Dina herself seems to get, uh, again, to use the modern word, no agency in anything that she does. And, and here I think it's quite symptomatic that she is locked away in a box mm -hmm. and Yaakov is punished for what he prevented Dina from doing. Yeah, I think, I think it's okay. I mean, you should feel free to... Like express however you feel comfortable, but like in dancing around or naming it, like we we know we're not interested <laughs> okay. here. Like to to put a name to it can be really validating okay. as well. And if the story were told otherwise, it, yeah. Anyway. Okay. Um, my starting point is we have to understand the Torah. We might have our own questions about sure. it, but the Torah is, contains the answers. We just have respect. to keep looking for it. Okay. Having. Don't have to deal with a tricky Rashi. Let's let's uh, relax with a very simple one. I think um, Rashi says on the word Yabok, Shem Hanahar. It's the name of the river. Um, and because actually we we sort of all know because we've sort of read this before that Yabok is the river Yabok. But if we didn't know it's the river Yabok, then we wouldn't really understand the phrase Vaya Avor et Ma'avar Yabok. So we need to be told it's a river and there's a crossing to it. And that leads us to the next possible. So really be, being told that Yabok is the name of a river, it's actually not just helping us understand Kaf Gimel, but it's linking Kaf Gimel to Kaf Dalet. Because having been told in Kaf Gimel, he passed over the crossing of Yabok. By the way, you could have read Yabok is the name of the crossing. And Rashi has to tell you it's not the name of the crossing, it's the name of the river. But I think more importantly, it's, it's setting up Asaf for Kaftalat, which says, he took them, and he passed them over at Hanachal, the brook, and he passed over his, that which was his. So Yaakov is doing this taking and passing uh, it's not quite clear whom, um, but he's passing things across the river. And we know that Bat Yabok is now, we now know that Yabok, which he passed over in Kafkimal, is a river. So it says Rashi on the words et asher lo. Interesting enough, he's really focusing on those words rather than vayikachem v'yavirei. So et asher lo, habahema v'hamataltalim. The animals and the movable goods, the chattels. Continues Rashi, Asa atzmo kegesher notel mikan umaniach mikan. He made himself like a bridge, taking from here and putting here. So there's a few things to say. Uh, really, there's, there's two points to Rashi. So the first is Rashi's explaining etar sher lo. And when it says, the avirem etar nachal, the aver et asher lo, 
he passed over that which was his. Rashi has to say it's Habahema Bahamataltali. Why? Why can't it be the people? That which is his sounds like perhaps his own family would be primary. And the answer is, it's a simple one, this, because they've already been passed over in Kafkimel, because all his wives and maidservants and 11 children and, and the box containing Dina had all passed over. So what's left? So Rashi needs to answer what's left. Et what does it mean? The animals and the movable objects, the luggage, if you like. Then what does it mean by Ya'aver? Now, I think Rashi's explaining what it means by Ya'aver, even though he doesn't use that word as a Dibra Maxil to introduce his comment. Um, so maybe that's a weakness in what I'm about to say. But when Rashi says, like a bridge, taking from here and putting from here, that's Rashi's explaining of Ya'aver et He made pass over that which was his. So what does it mean he took from here and put from here? So you find all sorts of suggestions. Did Yaakov stand on one side of the river and stretch all the way to the other side? Did he stand in the middle of the river and stretch from one side and then stretch to the other side? Did he lie across like a bridge? And uh, uh, no, I don't think he did because he's moving inanimate objects. So he has to do the moving himself. Um, we do know that Yaakov was very strong. How do we know that Yaakov was very strong? Picking up the rock, which three groups of shepherds could not pick up by themselves, but he did it in one go, like taking the cork out of a bottle, says Rashi. Um, so we know he's very strong, um, which is interesting, by the way, because you get this idea of this Nebuchadnezzar Yeshiva Bacha. Esau is out there hunting. What is, what is Yaakov doing all day? You know, sitting, twiddling his pears, sitting in, in, in the base of Medrash. Turns out that he's big and strong as well, it, uh, which is an interesting idea of the, uh, the muscular Jew. Um, and he's big and strong enough to take things from one side of the river and to put them on the other side. Okay, um, I think that's really all I want to say about Kaf Dalat because we'll get to Kaf Hay, about which there is a lot to say. We're probably not going to finish it tonight. Ve'yivater Yaakov lavado. Yaakov remained alone. Ve'yavek ish imo. Now Rashi's going to give two explanations of ve'yavek. But we'll just stick to what we, because we know what it's going to mean. Something about a man fought with him, ad alot hashacha, until the break of dawn. And then there's a bit of a conversation. Then the, the, this person wounds Yaakov, and then there's a bit of a conversation. And that's it, by the way. Now, this story is probably very well known, very poorly understood, because there's so many different ways of trying to understand it. Um, uh, but the Torah is incredibly brief. This story is three pesukim. This amazing story of Yaakov wrestling with the, well, we, we all know it's a malach, um, which uh, is the subject of so many books and the themes of so many pictures and so many ideas, um, is just rushed through in the Torah. And Rashi, true to form, doesn't say anything philosophical, anything about what's the symbolic meaning. He just tells you what the words mean, and he gives you a suggestion of who the ish was. So we, I think we will start at least and see how far we get in the time allowed on the words of Vayavek Ish. So Rashi has a single agenda, a single agendum at this point. What does the word Vayavek mean? Because it's a very obscure word. And he brings two explanations. The first is in the name of Menachem. So Menachem is one of the compilers of a what we would now call a dictionary, 
although they wouldn't have called it that in those days, but a list of words which are tricky to translate or to explain. And Menachem, who I think was the generation before Rashi, um, is such a compiler and is quoted from time to time by Rashi. And Menachem Perish, Vayit Aper. He says Vayit is like Vayit Aper. What's the root of Vayit Aper? Afar, meaning dust. Loshon Avak, an expression of dust. Shahayu Ma'alim Afar Baraglehim. That these two people, and, and we know they were fighting, but while they were fighting, they were raising dust with their feet, by means of their moving. So means they raised dust. Rashi doesn't like that. He mentions it, but he doesn't like it. Doesn't say why he doesn't like it. We'll try and do that ourselves. It seems to me, it's an expression of they got joined together. And it's an Aramaic expression. And see above for why Rashi quotes Aramaic explanations. And he quotes from the Gemara, after they had joined together. Um, I forget where in the Gemara that comes from, but your uh, um, uh, Safer will, will tell you. Thank you. And another example, um, when you make a loop and you tie it together, Loshan Aniva, an expression of tying, uh, not quite Kishira, tying like, like tying a tie. And why is this a, an appropriate translation? Why does Bayit Kasher join together, refer to two people wrestling? Shekain Derech Shanaim Shemit Atzmaim. It's the way of two people who are forcing themselves. To make the other one fall down, that they embrace, the ovko, and they mitkasher, they join together with their arms. You know, people wrestling, they like look like they're hugging each other, they're actually trying to pull each other down. And then he says, and Chazal say, that this was the angel of Esau. And that's Rashi's only explanation about this oft-quoted idea, but he's fighting the soul of Esau. So you've got five minutes. So why doesn't Rashi like the um, Ya'avek, meaning the Yit Aper, to raise dust? So um, the simple explanation is because the Ya'avek, in that sense, would be Hithil, to cause the dust to rise up. And thy, uh, the Nikud, uh, is not an expression of a hifl. The hifl version will be So it's simply the grammar is wrong. What type, what binyan is um, Again, I'm only quoting this because I don't know my binyan imperfectly, I'm afraid. But is an expression of a hitpael. And vayit kasher works because it's a hitpael. They embraced each other. Um, so the grammar doesn't follow Menachem, it does follow Rashi. Furthermore, the word imo. If you say is, he caused dust to rise. So a man caused dust to rise, imo, with him. 
Um, I mean, I suppose it could make sense like that. A man, together with him, they cause dust to rise, but that's not, um, that the, the Imo doesn't really follow. But if Ayavet means Vayit Kasher, he, ish, a man joined, then Imo works perfectly. So Rashi's explanation fits a lot better. Um, it's also worth saying that these two explanations, one from Anachem and one from Rashi, match perfectly two opinions in the Gemara. Um, uh, these two explanations of the word Vayavet are brought almost the way that they're brought here uh, in the Gemara in Sanhedrin. Um, in order to prove, um, I mean, we're jumping a couple of psukim ahead, we know that this person whom Yaakov is wrestling with is going to touch him on his thigh. And as a result, we don't eat the Gid Hanasha, the sinew of the thigh of animals. There's a machloket in the Gemara, whether it refers to just the right side, the right leg, or both legs. Um, and that machloket is based on the two readings of these pesukim, for reasons I'm not going to go into. Um, but the version in the Gemara of the one that Rashi prefers, sorry, the one that Menachem prefers, yes, is Vayavek, they raised dust, and the dust went up to Kiseh HaKavod, up to the throne of glory. Um, one more piece of the jigsaw. Um, the Midrash brings two explanations for who was this mysterious person. One, it was the angel Michael, and the other is it was Saroshel Esau. It was the angel that looked after Esau. By the way, why, why should Hashem send the angel of Esau for Yaakov to fight? Because if Yaakov can fight him and not be brought down by him, then that will give Yaakov Chizuk for his fight with Esau, or his meeting with Esau the following day. So he likes has a sort of dummy run of meeting Esau in a way that he can actually succeed and that prepares him for meeting Esau the following day. But putting all this together, it makes sense for Michael and Yaakov to be fighting and dust to go all the way up to Kisayakovah, because if Michael, the Malach, is involved, then it's something sort of positive and holy. However, if it's Saroshel Esau, then it doesn't make sense for the dust to be raised up to Kisayakovah. And therefore, it makes more sense, if we're going to say, putting all these together, I'm sorry, I'm rushing this, but if Vayavet means Vayit Kasher, as Rashi prefers, then we can rule out the possibility that the Midrash brings that the mysterious person was Michael. And whom are we left with? Sharash al which explains why Rashi ends, having said, I, Rashi, prefer the second explanation of Vayavet to mean Vayit Kasher. And then Rashi says at the end, uh, not as Midrash Agada or another explanation, but as the continuation of his explanation, putting all these pieces together, which I'm sorry I rushed through, it makes sense to say that Asa Rashi prefers his translation of Ayit Kasher, which means that the dust was not going up to Kisya Kovod, which means the one they were fighting with was not Michael, but rather was Sarosh Esau. So Rashi put Pirsha Razar Shahu Sarosh Esau as the conclusion of his interpretation. We will stop there. Thank you very much. See you next week. Thank you.